So Money episode 388, Whitney Johnson. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. So Money is brought to you today by Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the most tax-efficient, low-cost, hassle-free way to invest. Now, many of you I know are interested in simplifying your investment strategy. You want to reduce fees. You want to work with a service that you trust. And Wealthfront delivers. It builds and manages your personalized, globally diversified portfolio. To open an account, the minimum is just $500, and that gets you a periodically rebalanced, diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. There are zero trading fees, zero hidden fees, and advisory fees that are just a fraction of traditional advisors. In fact, Wealthfront manages your first $10,000 for free. To learn more and sign up, visit wealthfront.com forward slash so money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today's guest, she's recognized as one of the world's most influential management thinkers in 2015. She was also a finalist for the top thinkers on talent at the Biennial Thinkers 50 ceremony in London. Whitney Johnson is here. She's best known for her work on driving corporate innovation through personal disruption, personal disruption. Now you often hear about you know, disruption as it happens in the marketplace, entrepreneurship. We hear about companies like Warby Parker and Birchbox as being disruptors because they are changing the way that people shop, changing the way that companies are thinking. And so what is exactly personal disruption? Well, we're going to get into that. A little bit more about Whitney. She was an institutional investor ranked analyst for eight years at Merrill Lynch, former president and co-founder of a boutique investment firm with Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen. And now she's the author of the critically acclaimed book, Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. Inc. Magazine called it a top 100 business book in 2015. Whitney's also a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, a LinkedIn influencer, and is the co-founder of 40 Women Over 40 to Watch. So in addition to asking about you know, this whole disruption thing and how is it something that we can apply to our personal lives. Whitney and I talk about investing. You know, she has a very impressive background as an investor working at Merrill Lynch, picking stocks, but what is her kind of strategy now that she advocates for the average investor? It might surprise you. The sad but important financial lesson that she learned as a child and what it taught her later as an adult and her biggest financial failure involving a business and a friend. Here is Whitney Johnson. Whitney Johnson, welcome to So Money. I can't wait to learn more about disruption. It's like the word of the of the of the times right now. It's uh, definitely an urban dictionary term. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Where are you calling in from? Lexington, Virginia. It's Central Virginia, about three and a half hours southwest of Washington D.C. And are you from there originally? Were you uh, raised there? No, I'm actually from San Jose, California. And um, long story short, we were in Boston for about 15 years. And six months ago, uh, my husband 
uh, who was the lead parent, had an opportunity to go on to a tenure track position as a biology professor at this small liberal arts college in this rural corner of Virginia. And so we disrupted ourselves and moved. I love that. (laughs) Disrupting yourselves. Well, speaking of uh, it's the title of your book, Disrupt Yourself, uh, and really a, a timely book because this is something definitely in the entrepreneurial space you're hearing this term a lot, this idea that if you want to, uh, I mean, they're giving awards to <laughs> companies, startups that are quote unquote disrupting. Uh, in other words, you know, standing out, changing the status quo. Um, in some cases, if you ask entrepreneurs to them, what does disruption means? It means fighting with inertia. Um, if that makes any sense. You know, like I just ended up, yes. talk- I was just interviewing, for example, um, Katya Beecham, who's one of the co-founders of Birchbox, this concept where you pay $10 a month, you get a box of makeup samples and beauty care samples. You try on whatever you like. If you like it enough, maybe you'll buy a full-size product online from birchbox.com. And this concept is completely new and different because forever we've been buying makeup at the makeup counter in the mall. Right. And so what she's fighting, her biggest competition, she says, is inertia. So I find that being, you know, she's definitely called a disruptor. So I find that that's... um sometimes, you know, the unexpected big challenge is just our habits. So tell me a little bit about Disrupt Yourself, why you wanted to write it. And what do you mean in your, in your world, from your perspective, what does disrupt really mean? Well, I just to back up a little bit, I had um, worked with Clayton Christensen for about six or seven years and co-founded an investment firm with him called uh, Rose Park Advisors. Um, together with his son. And um, for for us, a disruptor is a, a low-end or new market product that eventually upends an industry. So like Toyota did to GM, like Target has done to Sears, and now we're seeing Uber do to yellow cabs. And so that is at its essence, the definition of disruption. Now, what I've done is I've said to myself, okay, well, if we look at, we know that this theory applies to products and services and companies and countries, but the fundamental unit of disruption is actually the individual. And so if you want to drive innovation in an organization, whether a company or a nonprofit, the best way to do that is through personal disruption. And so I've taken these frameworks that we use in these other um, venues or applications and turn them inward onto us as the individual. So can you bring that to life a little bit for me? Like if I'm somebody at a company and I'm really looking to supercharge my career, and, and that's, I think, a lot of our listeners, they're, uh, a lot of them are mid-career or a few years into their uh into their career. So they're not just, um, low on the, on the totem pole anymore. They're, they've amassed a lot of experience, maybe even some seniority. And now they want to not leave and start their own thing, but really make a splash within their existing company or, or move around within their career. How does someone like that take this framework and apply it and be successful? Okay. So one of the things, let me tell you a little bit of my personal story and then I can talk to you about a a sort of another example of that. So if you think about this from a low end, you know, you start at the low end, you climb to the top, um, and then you upend your career and where you currently are, and then you start all over again. And I think of this in terms of waves or the S-curve waves. Um, When I started on Wall Street, I started as a secretary. So I went into Wall Street through the secretarial 
side door. So that was effectively a low end disruptor. But then over the course of the next 15 years, I uh, moved from secretary into investment banker, stepped back to become an equity research analyst. But when I left Wall Street, I was absolutely at the top of my game. Um, I had been an institutional investor ranked analyst for eight years. I you know, had Carlos Slim quoting my research. So he's the controlling shareholder of American wow. Model and one of the world's richest men. So really exciting, catty stuff. And so you looked at it and I said to a friend, I'm going to quit my job. And she thought it absolutely lost my mind because from a, a stature perspective, from, from in terms of knowing how to do my job in terms of finan- financial, it, it made absolutely no sense. It was wholly and completely illogical. And yet I knew it was the right thing to do. And so I, I had climbed to the top and I was up ending my career and effectively disrupting myself. So to many people, it would have looked like, and, and for frankly, to me a little bit, it looked like a step back, which is what disruption looks like initially, because you're moving from the top of a curve to a bottom of a curve with the promise that over time, the slope of your next curve or your learning trajectory will be even steeper. And so you'll be even, you'll financially, you'll be better off potentially, but certainly emotionally, you'll be better off. And so taken as a whole or in an aggregate, you are better off having disrupted yourself than you were where you were before. What's the difference between disruption and being a risk taker? Mm. Uh, Great question. So I would say a risk taker is a much broader um, definition. And I'd say disrupting is a type of risk that you can take. So you can take on um, you can take on risk that is just completely and wholesale. That's not a word. A complete wholesale foolhardy risk. We make up words all the time on this (laughs) show. So don't worry. We put that in the urban dictionary. um, And then there's, you know, something like competitive risk where you, you know, there's five other competitors in the marketplace and you say to yourself, I'm going to enter this market. I think I can compete and win. That's competitive risk. That is not a type of, that's not disruptive risk. Disruptive risk is where you look at an opportunity and you say, I have no idea if there's a mark out there, but I think there's a need not being met. And I think you would say Warby Parker, or even Birchbox fits mm-hmm. into that category. You didn't, they didn't know if there was a market. But by taking on this market risk of saying, I don't know if there's a market, but if there are customers in this market, because I'm the first mover, Mm -hmm. I'm favored to own the market. And that's where the theory of disruption comes in. Because when you take on market risk, your odds of success are six times higher and your revenue opportunity 20 times greater. So risk is the broad category. A disruptive risk is a subset of that. Gotcha. Why do you think, what is it about our current world, what's going on in society, the economy where we we so need more disruption. Is it just that the status quo has been going on for too long and that's led to inefficiencies or uh, what? Why do you see this being such a now term and like oh. the movement is so, is so 2015, 16, 17? Right. That's an interesting, Interesting question. I I would not have framed it that way. I, I um you know as you're saying the call for disruption. I think part of what's happening is that the rate or pace of disruption is increasing from a technological standpoint. The rate of change is increasing. You look at the number of companies in the S and P 500, and the turnover is faster today than it was 10 years ago. You look at the pace of technological change; that's faster. And so you've got you've got these waves of change happening more quickly. And so the question becomes, 
on the one hand, if I'm a consumer benefiting from this exponential growth, it's like booyah. But if I'm the individual trying to deal with this seismic shift in what my world looks like, it can be pretty unsettling. So I think that the call for disruption is really a a sense of individuals, again, saying, okay, I don't want to just cope with this. I want to figure out how to ride the waves of disruption. So the best way for me to ride the waves of disruption is to figure out how to be a disruptor myself so that I, I am prepared to harness this as opposed to just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Whitney, let's talk about Whitney. Let's talk about your financial perspectives. I'm very curious, especially to know it, that you have worked in investment banking and um, the finance world. And you mentioned you grew up in San Jose. Was that during the dot-com boom a little bit? Because I remember watching like 60 Minutes <laughs> and mm-hmm. people saying, it was about 1998, 1997. And these people who were living in Palo Alto and San Jose, people were knocking on their doors, asking them to buy their home for like a million dollars, the home that they purchased <laughs> for like $110,000 in the 70s. Right. Um, so I'm always fascinated to find people who are from that, maybe from that region, um, way back when before it was, you know, uh, Silicon Valley. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself. What was your upbringing like? And, and maybe link it to money? You know, were there any financial influences that you had as a child growing up? Oh, good question. So interestingly, um, I have my actual grandparents arrived in San Jose around the turn of the last century. So like the early 1900s, my my grandmother lived in like downtown San Jose, which is kind of cool. And then my father graduated from Willow Glen High School in San Jose. And then I went to Leland High School. Um, So, you know, when he was growing up, it was just a lot of orchards and this sort of beautiful sort of sleepy place to live. Um, So the, 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 PC came out um, when I was in high school. So I was on like just the beginning. I sort of saw the very, very beginnings of it. Not the PC, but the Apple, sorry, the Mac came out when I was in high school or at the actually beginning of college. But um, so I just saw the very, very beginning of it. And um, it, it was just interesting to see it now go from being San Jose to this place where it's just Silicon Valley. Um, To see the before and after is actually very fascinating. From a money perspective, um, I I guess there's a little bit of, you think to yourself, wow, I should have held on to that house that we owned in 1980. (laughs) Yeah, right. And then sold it now. And so it's an interesting thing to have lived somewhere that has gone on to be sort of the the field of dreams for so many people and and really the El Dorado of, of this century and to have been there before that. It's a kind of an interesting sort of perspective. I, I would say a little bit of nostalgia um, and also a little bit of wistfulness, but also a, a real connected, you know, a feeling connection to that place as well. What's your greatest money memory as a kid growing up? Did you have a lemonade stand? Did you work, uh, you know, your first job when you were 12? Did you, what was a lesson that you learned about? Oh, this is a great question. Um, unfortunately one of my, my biggest money lessons is I remember going to a piano lesson and having, um, my, my parents check bounce. Um, and my teacher candy, the check back to me and saying, your parents check bounce. And I think now, like I would never do that to a child, but I do think that it's an important and in many ways, a very formative memory, because I think it instilled in me this thing of, I am going to always be able to take care of myself. I am not going to have checks bounced. And I think that really motivated me to just always make sure 
that, you know, I've always worked since I've been out of college. And I think that's been really important to me to make sure that I could economically take care of myself. So it's kind of a sad memory. But on the other hand, sometimes those really sad memories are really what motivate us to like make something of ourselves and, and, and sometimes become the biggest motivators. So much. That's so true. Most nights, usually around six o'clock at night at my house, you'll hear, what do you want to have for dinner? Yeah, my husband and I are the worst at meal planning, and too often we end up ordering in or making bowls of cereal, neither of which is healthy, appetizing, or cost-effective. It's no way to live, people. So it is with such joy and relief that I'm introducing today's sponsor, PrepDish. PrepDish is a subscription-based meal planning service that takes the stress out of planning your meals. With PrepDish, you get an email every week that contains a grocery list of seasonal ingredients plus instructions for prepping your meals ahead of time. And for just two hours of prep, you get a week's worth of delicious meals. I'm talking Romesco baked salmon with roasted sweet potatoes, turkey and zucchini lasagna. PrepDish is offering so many listeners a special rate of $4 for the first month's worth of meal plans. It's a dollar per week. Go to PrepDish.com slash so money to start today. And by the way, they specialize in gluten-free, dairy-free, and paleo meals for all you health nuts out there. PrepDish.com slash so money. What would you say is your financial philosophy, Whitney? Do you have a money mantra? (laughs) (laughs) I do. And that is save, 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 and save, and save some more. Um, I think it's just, I I think, uh, well, I'm being a little bit... Do you spend as well, I hope, along the way? (laughs) I do do spend, but I I feel like I've kind of had this interesting thing where I feel like my mom was a really hard worker and she really learned how to make money. But I don't feel like my mom's generation really taught us how to build wealth in a way like you know how to make money, you know how to spend money, but they didn't know so much how to save money um, or even to build wealth. And so my mantra at this point is to be able to, to, you know, work, then save, and then to teach my children how to build wealth. And so that's become my, my mantra at this point. What's your best way to build wealth? It's a really good question. And it's shifted over the years because um, on the one hand, you would say, I'm sure you're thinking that the obvious response for me is going to be, well, invest in the stock market, which, you know, I did for years and years and also to invest in privately held companies. But I also think another really important way to build wealth apart from just saving money is to to find ways to invest in the local economy around you, like local, you know, houses and businesses around you, because then you're not only investing um, in something that you think can can create value, but also can um, build the economy and sort of create jobs in the place where you actually live. So how do you actually get in on those deals? Do you just knock on restaurant doors? And I mean, is it, it seems like because that's not a public thing, how do you get in on those important deals? Oh, I think that, you know, where we live now, I would say it's a lot easier because it's a kind of a small rural area. And so you, you can network into the community pretty quickly. Um, so that's something that we're currently figuring out, but I think, you know, the, the, the college town where my husband teaches has been, kind of decimated 30 or 40 years ago because there were some major floods. And we look at that and say, you know what, this is such a beautiful place over time. 
This is going to get more attractive again. So are there opportunities to buy buildings in the downtown? These aren't buildings, skyscraper buildings, but, you know, just buildings that could house stores and sort of commercial real estate and then also houses itself and, and, and look, making bets on what will happen in a community. Yes. Failure, Whitney. How, how is a, <laughs> how would you feel sharing maybe a financial failure with us? And it doesn't have to be, um, Anything that happened too recently? If 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 you're if you've had a pretty good bill of financial health the last uh, you know decade or so, but maybe even take us down memory lane. Your your biggest lesson learned from a financial failure? Yeah, um, I have plenty. Um, I would say my biggest financial failure um, that I want to talk about at this point, but it's still a pretty big one, is. Um, And which I think goes to, I think this is an important thing, calling this out. When money doesn't go well, I think we feel a lot of shame. And in fact, I think people are more ashamed to talk about money than they are about sex, which I think is really weird. But nonetheless, it's true. (laughs) Um, But uh, the one that I will mention is about 10 years ago, we had a friend who had this idea for a business and it was a really good idea. And we... um, and it was, it was her dream. And so we made sure that, and she didn't have the money to capitalize it, but we did. And so we capitalized the business and allowed for her to be the controlling shareholder, which was in retrospect, a huge mistake because, um, once she was able to build the business, she kind of became a little bit of an Attila the Hun and, um, and when mismanaged it. And then when the business and basically uh, mismanaged it. Uh, that's all I'll say. She mismanaged it. And so when they moved, um, and there was a little bit, there was some, something that felt slightly fraudulent, but, um, because she had control, we, there was nothing we could do. And so, um, we lost a lot of money. And so I think the lesson that I learned there is that it's really important to, um, when you go into business with someone to vet your partners and if they're friends to vet them even more carefully. And when you're vetting, be really clear on what your rules of, uh, of engagement are. And so I think that was a really important, important, valuable lesson. It didn't break us. So it's, it's okay, but it was an important, important lesson to learn. And it clearly, I would think it, it broke the relationship. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So there wasn't any way to, you know, um, to quote unquote, you know, punish her or like get her to fess up. I mean, how how do you, how did you you end up settling this? I I think there, there would have been, um, but her husband was a lawyer or is a lawyer. And so then that gets really expensive because he can do stuff all day long and there's nothing you can do about it unless you're willing to spend a lot, a lot of money. Um, I think the other thing that I've, actually learned, and this goes to this idea of failure, is the importance of also forgiveness. Um, Forgiveness doesn't necessarily, in fact, it does not mean that something that someone's done is okay, but it does mean that you let go of it. Um, I'm sure you can hear my voice. It's still, there's some emotion there, but forgiveness is an ability to say, it doesn't control me. It doesn't, doesn't depend. It doesn't dictate how I'm going to live my life from day to day. It doesn't, it doesn't have uh, it's not, I'm not held in its thrall. And I think that that's an important thing that we all have to learn because I think if you, and you probably do, cause you have these conversations with people is that you find that pretty much everybody at some point has had someone not behave well in a business situation. And you have to decide like, are you 
going to be bitter or are you going to be grateful? And, you know, the healthiest of us, if we're trying to be healthy, decide to be grateful and move on. Yeah. Wow. Well, <clears throat> it's not easy how, how you've just even described it is like, it's not even easy to say that, <laughs> it's not, let alone do it's that. <laughs> so I give you a lot of credit. What would you say has been your greatest success? Let's just flip it and talk your so oh. money moment, Whitney. Yeah. My so money moment. Um, well, an early one is, is that I remember, you know, I was just, just had started working and, um, and I had just read Peter Lynch's one up on wall street and we were using Franklin Covey planners at the time. And I was like, okay, I love this. I'm going to buy what I know. Cause that's Peter Lynch, buy what you know. And we bought that stock and it did really well. And I just felt so, I felt so empowered around that. Like, I bought what I knew and I, and this is before I was an equity analyst. I think it, I was still actually a secretary. I wasn't even a banker yet. And I just felt so empowered and proud of myself of like buying what I knew and then making money on it. It was, it was actually really exciting. How often does that happen in your, in your world? Like you're just really right about a stock. Well, that's a great question. I mean, you know, if, if you look at the whole behavioral you know, finance thing, we're, you know, even really good investors are right, like 55% of the time. Um, but we tend to not remember it that way. But I would say that having been on Wall Street as an, you know, number one, as an equity analyst, and, you know, being rated as a stock, top stock picker by Starmine, better than average. And then again, our fund, um, at the time that I left or sold my stake at Rose Park Advisors after five years, you know, we were our Kager was like 11% versus 0% for the S&P. So, so decent. Um, and I, I do think that stock picking is a fascinating, fascinating discipline because there's a lot of financial analysis that takes place, but, um, but stocks have a personality. And so there's this whole momentum psychology to it. That's important as well. And I think when it comes to stock picking and investing, generally, we have to do the analysis, but I think we also have to look for momentum and there is definitely sort of a left brain, right brain aspect to stock picking or investing generally. Yeah, well, we talk a lot about about just passive investing on this show. You know, for the average investor who doesn't really have time to be following stocks, let alone the um, the ability to really analyze them, um, that passive investing indexing is kind of the way to go. Do you do you buy into that philosophy? I do. I do. I think. I mean, I think that. Um, I, I, I think it can be a both and. I think that um, passive investing, um, you know, is a good philosophy to invest a lot of your money in because I, you really cannot time the market and and you could, but we're not disciplined enough to do it because mm-hmm. our emotions kick in. So I think that that is important. But I also think there is an element um, for a small portion of your money. Maybe it's ten percent. Maybe it's twenty percent. Where picking stocks or even investing in early stage or later stage companies, there's an element to that that is partly about the investing, but it's partly about the ownership and partly about the the empowerment that you feel when you invest and also about sort of a more hands-on approach to building wealth and to building businesses and building sort of capitalism generally that's important. But I don't think it's wise for that to be the um, – you know, the, the majority of your investments. I think you're better off having a lot of these passive investments as, as you suggested. 
So good to hear from somebody who was <laughs> an investor for, yeah, for most of her life. That's <laughs> reassuring for sure. Whitney, what would you say is your number one financial habit? You know, you talked earlier about how saving, saving, saving is your money mantra. Is there a habit that you practice that helps you uphold and practice that, that mantra? Yeah. You know, you're, you'll pro you may be surprised. Maybe you won't, but, um, we pay, we tithe. So 10% of our, our gross income goes to our church. And I think that that's actually really important because it's not only, it's sort of this reminder, okay, pay God first, but then after that to pay ourselves. And, um, that is something that has been steadfast, something that I've done throughout my life. And so, doing sort of paying God first and like, okay, we need to pay ourselves and save, save second, that helps create a, sort of a discipline or an approach to money generally that I think is really important. And a consciousness. Yes, exactly. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah. All right, Whitney, you've been so much fun. Um, you're disrupting so many as we speak. You're, you're just giving <laughs> such great answers and really raising the bar for other guests. Let's do some so many fill in the blanks. This is when I ask or rather state a sentence, an unfinished sentence, and then you finish it. Okay. All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million bucks, the first thing I would do is pay tithing and then save. Yeah. Really? We wouldn't buy anything fun or go on a trip or. Um, I'd probably buy a Porsche too, but okay, I think there we go. Things first. Yeah. <laughs> Indulge us. Okay. This is yeah. like, this is a dream scenario. Um, all right. One thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is. Books. I love books. Yeah. What are you reading right now? I am reading a whole bunch of books. I'm reading because I read a lot of books at one time. I'm reading a book called Shadow Scale by Rachel Hartman. It's a young adult uh, fiction book. I'm reading The Body of Desire by, um, I think it's Michael Pollan. And I'm reading On Combat by Dave Grossman. Cool. All right. Let's, it's nice to always add some more books to the to the list. To the list. I know. Um, all righty. The one splurge that I pay for, but it's my splurge and I wouldn't have it any other way. What is that? Uh, going out to lunch with my daughter. Oh, how old's your daughter? She's 14 and or 15, sorry, 15 and a half. And, you know, lots of days after, you know, I pick her up from school or on Saturday, like we don't need to go out to lunch, but it's just so much fun. And we've kind of had this challenge of going to every restaurant in downtown Lexington that we can. And it's, we, we love doing it. That's important. I remember being 15, 16 and, and having some one-on-one -on -one time with my mom, you know, it's so, you, you don't forget those conversations. Those are, those are some really important times to just kind of hash things out and talk yeah. about life and, and just, you know, bond a little bit. Cause you don't really, at that age, I don't think you probably see her as much as you'd like. No, exactly. And partly because of her schedule and then partly because I travel a lot. Right. All right. When I was younger, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is. <laughs> <laughs> I sound like <laughs> to build wealth. To invest in the stock market when I was a lot younger. <laughs> yeah. Well, no doubt. I don't think anybody got that kind of education growing up. Very few. Right. Very few. Right. When I donate, and maybe I already know the answer to this, when I donate, I like to give to blank because? 
Okay. So apart from the, the tithing piece, um, I like to um, donate to uh, things like um, uh, Springboard, which is a, a platform for investing in women. And I like to uh, donate to um, microcredit organizations. Great. It's like Kiva. Do you ever use Kiva? Yeah. Like yeah. Kiva. Uh-huh. Super. Yep. All right. Last but not least, I'm Whitney Johnson. I'm so money because... I'm so, oh wow, this is good. I'm so money because, because money helps make the world go round. And if money finances dreams and I want to finance the world, I want. Thank you so much, Whitney. Your book is called Disrupt Yourself and Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. Congratulations. Must be, must feel really good to have that out there. And the cover is actually really cool. It's kind of got this like Superman vibe to it. Superwoman, superwoman. Yes, I was hoping you would miss that. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much again to Whitney. If you'd like to learn more about Whitney Johnson, her website is WhitneyJohnson.com. She's also on Twitter at Johnson Whitney, one word. If you missed any of this and want to get the transcript or just download the audio, maybe leave a comment, head over to somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, of course, click on Ask Farnoosh. It's the best way to let me know what's on your money mind. Every Friday, I turn the tables and answer your money questions. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money. Money.